UN Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today we're talking with Dr. Ruth Moore of the PCUM Georgia Department of Physical Therapy about her work in treating patients with stress urinary incontinence. Professor Moore is a board-certified clinical specialist in women's health from the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties. Prior to joining academia, she owned and ran private physical therapy practices in Dublin, Ireland, and in the United States, specializing in women's health and chronic pain conditions. Her published research centers on the assessment and validation of novel wearable neuromuscular stimulation devices in the treatment of pelvic floor dysfunction. Dr. Moore also works as a consultant to a biomedical company in Ireland, where she assists with the development and testing of technologies using electrical stimulation. She holds a patent for a device she co-developed during her PhD studies, which recently received FDA approval for the treatment of stress urinary incontinence. Dr. Moore earned a PhD from University College Dublin, a doctor of physical therapy from Simmons College in Boston, and a master of physical therapy from Georgia State University in Atlanta. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Moore, could you please tell us more about your background and how your work in the treatment of individuals with pelvic floor dysfunction started? Sure. Well, physical therapy is a second career for me. I took early retirement uh, after 15 years of working in an electricity utility company in Ireland uh, and moved to America with my husband with, on a green card and went back to college. And I trained as a generalist, which is what most uh, DPT students end up being in their first few years post-graduation. And in that time, I came across a lot of individuals with back pain and or lumbopelvic pain. And in the interviews, I had discovered that they, most of them presented with some type of urinary incontinence, which I hadn't really learned a lot about in my entry-level education. But I was very intrigued by the prevalence of it and sought out additional education. And you mentioned I took the board certification exam and I shadowed some urologists in various practices around Atlanta and decided to make that uh, my specialty practice in Kennesaw. And that's where it all started. And I became somewhat frustrated um, with my inability to teach a small cohort of women how to do the pelvic floor exercises, and then decided I needed to learn ultrasound imaging um, myself so I could see what was going on. And that's sort of how it all started. And I, using ultrasound imaging in my practice, just opened a whole new area for assessment, evaluating, and treatment. So that's basically how I got started working in the pelvic floor area. Well, that's fascinating. According to research, only 25% of women with stress urinary incontinence seek care after dealing with stress urinary incontinence symptoms for seven years. Why do you think this occurs? I think there's an overwhelming sense of embarrassment. And also because of its prevalence, I think it's somewhat become normalized. Uh, a lot of women think just by virtue of the fact of being a woman and having babies or going through menopause, that it's inevitable that they're going to have some type of urinary incontinence, um, which is true, but it doesn't mean they have to live with it. There's also approximately 63% of women leak during coitus, um, and it's something that ruins relationships. And the World Health Organization has come out and said it's the last taboo, um, and it really is a silent epidemic. Um, 
education is also another thing. I think women are poorly educated about the impact of uh, just general their living on the pelvic area. They may talk about it to their friends, but I think it's really the embarrassment and the helplessness that is a barrier to them talking to a healthcare professional about it. So what percentage of women over the age of 50 have symptoms of stress urinary incontinence? There's probably one in three, but women over the age of 50 generally have mixed incontinence, which is urinary uh, frequency or urgency and stress incontinence. And this usually occurs in women postmenopausal, and it's usually because um, depletion in estrogen, and there are estrogen receptors in the urethra. So when those receptors don't receive estrogen, the integrity of the urethra is uh, compromised. And also the pelvic floor is compromised just because of, um, I suppose, the number of births that have gone through. Um, obesity is high correlation with stress incontinence. And a lot of women postmenopause will find themselves putting on a lot of adipose around the abdominal region. Uh, which doesn't help them. There's actually women as young as young girls as young as 16 that can develop stress incontinence due to um, engagement in high impact activities or sports. Also, women in their 30s, when they start having babies, there's research to show the pelvic floor structures stretch 3.79 times their normal length. That was Delancey and Cohen University of Chicago. So these muscles don't always return to the way they were pre-pregnancy. So, but there's a lot can can be done. Women don't have to put up with it. I also think direct consumer marketing on the TV with the pad companies hasn't helped because they offer a pad, which to me is a band-aid, and they never offer any other solutions during the advertisement. So I think women, uh, again, are ill-informed as to what can be done to help them when they have this condition. Is there a gold standard for treating stress urinary incontinence? According to the International Continent Society, the gold standard is actually conservative management, which is pelvic floor exercises. Um, okay. Unfortunately, there's quite a broad uh, array, a range of women that cannot do the contraction. And I alluded to this earlier when you asked me about my background. Um, you cannot see the muscles. Um, we can't test them like a manual muscle test you would with, you know, say, the biceps or the quadriceps. And that's why ultrasound imaging is so beneficial because you can catch these women initially if they can't do the contraction. A lot of them will either do a bearing down maneuver or a valsalva, or they'll use uh, other muscles such as the adductors or quadriceps or, or the gluteal muscles. Um, and they'll come to me and they'll say, but I've been doing these pelvic floor exercises for years and they didn't work. Well, what they were actually doing was were not pelvic floor exercises. So they are very difficult to learn for some people. And they're, you know, they're otherwise called Kegel, but I tend to not use the word Kegel because Arnold Kegel um, focused on the anterior portion of the pelvic floor, but the contraction really happens from the anus uh, to the front. But there's, there, as I said, there's a lot of women cannot do the contraction, and they may not find out for years they can't do the contraction because there aren't a lot of clinicians that are doing pelvic floor exams when women come seeking help for this. They may just verbally teach the women how to do the exercises or give them a sheet okay. of paper. Got right, it. So there's no confirmation of results with that. All right, which leads us to the device you've helped to develop, 
and its outcome for users. So can you tell us about it? Sure. So that came out of frustration in trying to teach women, even with ultrasound imaging, they just couldn't engage the muscles, even with tactile cues, uh, even using the conventional electrical stim, which uses vaginal or anal probes. Um, and in my literature reviews, in the development of my device, I discovered that um, the results are equivocal for conventional electrical stim using the probes because only 11 to 16% of women will get a contraction. And that's because there's so much variability in the innervation of the muscles we're trying to target. They've so far discovered that there's three nerves innervating the pelvic floor, not just one nerve. So it's not just the pudendal nerve, it's the levator ani nerve and also uh, branches off the iliohypogastric nerve. And I use this knowledge to design the machine knowing that I had to have a larger conductive stimulating surface area. So if we were to compare the stimulating surface area on the device or the shorts I developed, it's nearly 1,100 square centimeters versus a probe, which is anyway from 4 to 21 square centimeters, depending on the size and shape of the probe, which, of course, is limited by the size of the vaginal space. So essentially, the shorts are stimulating as many nerve fibers as we can around the sacral area to maximize the ability to elicit a contraction in the pelvic floor. And so far, with the hundreds of people that it's been on in Europe, uh, we've had no one that we couldn't get a contraction in, only those that had an avulsion of the muscle. So it's very exciting for me and gratifying to have a device that women can use in their home to teach themselves how to do the contraction. So how often would the women wear the device? At the moment, we recommend five days a week for up to 30 minutes, but there's another study ongoing to see if we can cut the treatment down to 15 minutes. It's like the law of diminishing returns. You know, for each additional minute or contraction, you wonder, are you getting an additional benefit? And the initial um, dosage or treatment time was based on old research with the conventional probes because that's initially what I did my comparative studies to. So we're looking at trying to reduce the treatment time at the moment. So, so down to five times a week for 15 minutes. For how many weeks? Oh, to up to 12 weeks. However, 12 we weeks. are seeing staggering uh, improvements within the first two to four weeks, which obviously aren't strength mediated. So there's some sort of neural adaptation. And there's recent research to show that electrical stimulation um, can enhance cortico uh, muscle um, excitation. So there's obviously some sort of neural enhancement going on. And then after the 12 weeks, we see uh, we had a 80 plus cure, uh, percent cure rate in women with stress incontinence um, across the gamut of mild to moderate to severity, according to the ICS guidelines. We followed many up for a year, and most are still dry. But the most exciting thing for me was it taught them how to do the contraction themselves. So they, they said they, you know, they end up doing the contraction in the car, or in the shower. Um, it's sort of made them more compliant and more aware of the area that they need to keep working on it. it shouldn't be ignored. And um, do you know at what point in time this will be ready for distribution in the United States? Yes, it's already available on prescription. However, a report was submitted to the FDA approximately 30 days ago, and we're awaiting confirmation of over-the-counter availability. And we anticipate that um, supplies will roll out maybe February or March.
I know the company have sort of hired a few people over here recently. So hopefully February or March, it'll be available OTC for women who want to use it. Well, I mean, congratulations. Uh, the name of the company is Atlantic Therapeutics. So. Congratulations. This is a, you know incredible device that's going to help a lot of women with, with a very common problem. So my, yeah. you know, We've actually my... seen in the UK that it helps men post-prostatectomy. So there's an ongoing study in the UK oh, looking wow. at its efficacy in that population as well. Wow. This, this is great. So the first question I have for you is, um, having spent many years living in the US, it's, it's been very difficult for me to sort of um, come to grips with the, the healthcare system here compared to the UK or Ireland, which I'm very familiar with. And I looked up some statistics and 17% of GDP is spent on healthcare in the US compared to approximately 7% in the UK and Ireland. Um, however, the, the US lags behind other countries uh, with regard to some metrics. And a recent Gallup poll reported that 25% of Americans are putting off serious medical conditions or the treatment of those because of cost. And these are insured Americans. And for the first time in 100 years, the CDC has reported that um, the U.S. is in the midst of the longest sustained drop in life expectant expectancy. So my question to you, Dr. Feldstein, is how do we as clinicians change the system? Do you think clinicians can affect change in the U.S. healthcare system to improve patient outcomes, which is really paramount to why we're here? And when, especially when there are so many profiteering stakeholders? You know, Dr. Moore, we've, uh, I've been in the health industry, and I call it that because it is an industry um, that affects everything from medical devices like yours, to pharmaceuticals, to hospitals, to insurance agents, to everyone that's involved in healthcare. The system is broken. And I actually think we need a new system. I think we need to start from a different premise. What we have in the United States is a sickness system where people profit off of sickness and it's and healthcare as opposed to health. And we need to build a system that has a different premise. And that premise is based on health. And that's different. And that's where you reward people for actually prevention. And you reward primary care physicians for the number for the members in their population who don't become obese, who don't develop type 2 diabetes, who don't smoke, and who don't abuse alcohol, and who are following you know relatively modest lifestyle uh, adaptations won't get chronic diseases that are 50% attributable to lifestyle. So that's the first premise. And that's based off the concept <clears throat> until we figure out a way that people can make as much money keeping people healthy as they do taking care of them when they're sick, we'll that's never see real argument. change. <laughs> yeah, I agree totally and, with you. And the other issue is the fact that people in healthcare in this country just make more money than other people make in other countries. And that, that's just a fact. I mean, it costs more because people here make more money. They that's charge true. more and get paid more. Hmm. And I don't know what orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons and plastic surgeons make in Ireland or the UK, but it's probably not to the same level that specialists make here. No, it's not. And that, that's, you know, that adds to that 70% of GDP. Yeah. You know, and, 
And that's just that's just the system we live in. So, you know, I think until we change the payment methodology and all this nonsense about value based purchasing is just another form of a bundled purchase, you know, of who gets paid what. You know, but until you, you pull the sickness out of it, we're never going to have really effective change because there's too many people getting older with multiple chronic disease and multiple conditions. You know, 50% of the population over the age of, you know, 75 is on 10 medications plus. And we're just never going to see real effective change. Yeah, it's sad, actually. But we'll keep My trying. My mom is 89 and she's on one medication. Yeah, she's very lucky. She's, yeah. she's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. But she's living in Ireland, too. <laughs> I so, think if we all moved no. to Ireland, that would probably help. Well, you know, their health care isn't perfect either. You know, they've they've a crisis because the population has grown so much. You know, they don't have enough beds in some of the hospitals. So there's a two-tier system there in the UK where it is public and private. So more people are going with private route if they can afford it. Yeah, there's a two-tiered system everywhere, <laughs> yeah. right? The haves and the have-nots. The have-nots. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you True. know, I think we've, we've got to do a better job on making basic health care available at a reasonable price. I mean, $6,000 deductibles for the Affordable Care Act, people can't afford that. No. And that's why you're seeing people putting off care. Yeah. The other thing that I can come to grips is, is if I need a hip replacement, I, I can't ask, how much is this going to cost me? If I was asked to ask 11 different facilities, I'd probably get 11 prices with great variability. You know, if I, if I go to Ireland or England and I'm paying out of pocket, I say, how much is a knee replacement going to cost me or a hip replacement? And they can give me an exact number. I well, that's because that. in, this, in this country, the uh, what is charged is not what is paid because the insurance companies don't pay what charges are. They have a contracted rate. Yeah. And you know, in essence, you almost have to call your insurance company and say, how much are you going to pay Dr. X for my hip replacement? Yeah. And then what's my responsibility? And that's the only way you're going to get that answer. Yeah. So, you know, but, in, you know, and the fact of the matter is, you know, how many hip replacements we have as a function of obesity and lack of exercise and the fact that, you know, people are getting hip replacements younger because it used to be 30 years ago, you got a hip replacement if you couldn't walk and get out of bed. Now you get a hip replacement if you can't play tennis because your hip hurts. Yeah. True. So they're, they're all trade-offs. True. But at least now we've got a great non-surgical treatment for urinary incontinence. <laughs> we'll see. Well, you know, I hadn't, I had limited the BMI to women when I did the studies in Ireland to 35, which doesn't really okay. represent the average BMI of ladies in the U.S. So we, we are going to start looking at people with higher BMIs because even if the pelvic floor gets, does get stronger, if the intra-abdominal pressure created by coughing is greater, with the added weight, you know, it can, right. it's a balancing act. So we don't know right. the, the answers to that yet. That'll be an interesting uh, piece of outcome. But, you know, it's a platform. There's lots of other things can be done off because of the way the stimulation can. This, I forgot to tell you, the other thing is there's programmable stimulus. So it's called multi-path stim. So there's eight electrodes, um, four on each side. But topographically, they can behave as pairs. Uh, and I can program the stimulus in to go in different 
post your program the pulse is going different directions so you don't need the same nerves uh, in succession so you don't have the fatigue ability associated with, with regular nmes that's why you can have so many contractions without fatigue and it's also designed to not really just strengthen the floor but to enhance the phase of contraction that should occur when when women cough or sneeze when that intra-abdominal uh, pressure spikes because if it was just a strength or endurance issue women would be leaking and especially as the day goes long and they're up against gravity uh, but that's not what happens with stress incontinence they're only leaking at periods where the intra-abdominal pressure spikes so it's to train the reflexive coordination so it's a very quick contraction it's on and off very fast so we'll see i hope it does well in america i don't know it's it's, it's been very slow i've had it since 2008 so it's the first company that got the license from ucd didn't really do a great job and I sort of shelved it and just forgot about it. And then Atlantic Therapeutics came in maybe a year and a half ago and they know what they're doing. You know, it's fantastic. There's no sticky electrodes. It's it's um basically paint that's the wiring and the electrode. You just basically screen print it on. I'm hoping a lot of women will really improve their quality of life because we talked about obesity and lifestyle and these women give up so much after they this leakage uh, worsens over a period of time. And this leads to all the other diseases that are associated with obesity, diabetes, you know, cardiovascular diseases and all that. Um, so that's the sheer cost of this condition, stress incontinence. It's not just the cost of the pads, it's the cost across the lifespan of that individual and the effect it has on their relationships with their partners because they're leaking during sex and the depression. And um, I don't think all that has been measured, to be honest, but I've seen so it in patients. You need to come up with a waste design that stimulates externally gastric stomach contraction to fool the stomach that it's full. So now not only will this treat stress incontinence, it can be an anti-obesity weight loss device. Yeah, instead of bariatric surgery. That's a great idea. We'd love to talk about that. It's so not we impossible. Talk about that. Well, we want to I want to do some studies for people with fecal incontinence because that's one thing that really affects people, more so than SUI. Um, and this, we've done some preliminary data, which is exciting, and also for pelvic organ prolapse, um, even up to the highest grade. Uh, I've seen some amazing results just on one or two individuals. But of course, that's not really research. That's just piloting right. or checking. We'll see. I'm hopeful. Just again, really want to thank you, Dr. Moir. We uh, greatly appreciate your insights and your passion in helping to treat this widespread women's health issue. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.